Hello, everyone. This is Danny Haifong. You're tuning into another live stream at this time to react to last night's State of the Union address given by Joe Biden. It was his first as president of the United States, I believe. Uh, maybe it wasn't. I actually don't know. Um, let's see. When did he? Oh, yeah. It, mm, might not be the first. Check me on that. But nonetheless, we are going to talk about the State of the Union Address. It is worth talking about, not because Joe Biden is particularly entertaining to listen to, not because Joe Biden said very important things that we all need to pay attention to throughout the speech. There was a lot of filler. So this stream will not be reviewing particular segments of the State of the Union. I do not want to listen to Joe Biden. And I hope you also don't want to listen to Joe Biden. So this will really go over two elements of his address. The first will be the international situation, the foreign policy agenda. And this is particularly important because Joe Biden literally spent the first 15 to 20 minutes talking about Russia, Ukraine, and to me, it sounded like the new Cold War version of a State of the Union address that was given in 2001 when George W. Bush essentially announced the global war on terror. It felt like that kind of speech where there was a public announcement that the United States was going to wage this new Cold War on Russia through the pretext of Russia's intervention in Ukraine. You saw all of the flags and all of the blue and yellow that was being worn by Congress people, members of Congress, as well as just whoever was attending uh, that speech. Otherwise, it was quite startling. It was very troubling, and we need to talk about it. So welcome to the stream. Please do like the stream as you're coming in. Please do hit the subscribe button and then hit the bell as you're coming in. And... Also, if you are able, please do support my work at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. That is how you support this show. Now, I'm trying to get the viewers up, so definitely like the stream. Make sure you're sharing it around, talking about it, uh, because I have been streaming more often, boosting the algorithm as much as possible. And then when I'm not streaming, I am doing clips more frequently and spending a little bit more time on this. Now, this doesn't mean I'm not writing anymore. There is an article in the queue that I'm working on in relation to the racism and Western chauvinism of media coverage of the Ukraine-Russia conflict, and that should be coming out on my Substack in the next day or two. But it does mean that I do want to pay more attention to this kind of work because I do feel like it is an important way to get out updates and live coverage of events that you just can't find on mainstream media and you definitely cannot find in just media in general a leftist a marxist a socialist perspective an internationalist perspective on political developments such as these so welcome 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 again like the stream hit the subscribe button hit the bell for your notifications we are growing which is great there was a long time where it was just hard to get on here and yeah there was a, a lot of lag in the growth, but now it is picking up. And so that is great. So continue to like this stream. I hope I sound okay. I'm try actually trying to keep the volume a little bit lower than I usually do. So I hope you can hear me because 
unfortunately, I noticed that sometimes there can be audio issues. I don't know what's going on. I'm not going to be sharing anything, sharing my screen. I noticed that that can have an issue as that can be an issue as well in terms of the audio on here, something that I'm trying to still figure out. So yes, you're here now. So keep liking the stream, keep sharing it around, subscribing to the channel, and let's get started. So first, I want to talk about my initial reaction to Joe Biden's State of the Union address. I was only able to watch in full, and then I watched clips and did some reading about the second half, but I was really only able to watch the first third to a half of it live. And my reaction to the first 15 minutes was one of just utter contempt. Joe Biden, of course, was not elected on a peace agenda. He was not elected on a peace platform. Uh, Joe Biden has been a hawk toward Russia for much of his career. He's been a, a, a neocon hawk for all of his career. And it was inevitable that U.S. imperialism would escalate under his rule. There was not going to be any rollback from the Trump era, that there would just be a shift in how imperialism wages war abroad. And that is exactly what Joe Biden essentially articulated to Americans and all people who are viewing his State of the Union address. It was actually quite frightening, and people should have been scared listening to the address because of the way that he was bragging for 15 straight minutes about how much he was going to essentially provoke and contain Russia through direct military support of Ukraine and through the starvation sanctions that Joe Biden is going to continue to place onto Russia. And he announced that he was going to have all flights to and from Russia, American flights, American Airlines, not the company American Airlines, but US Airlines, they were going to cancel all flights to and from Russia, which is a, a very big economic move, a, a part of the sanctions regime. But to hear him brag and then to hear the chants of USA, USA, USA from Congress definitely gave me fascist vibes. I mean, this is something that needs to be discussed in this way. The way that Joe Biden so brazenly bragged about how tough he was going to be on Russia should be a pause for concern. And it just shows that this new Cold War is not going anywhere no matter what happens in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And an update on that, right, I, if you've been following people like Pepe Escobar and other geopolitical analysts who are following the situation closely on the ground, it is quite clear that all of this bluster about, and we saw it during the speech, this bluster about Ukraine in this heroic fight back against Russia is essentially just lies right russia has a particular military strategy that is not being wrestled with or talked about because that would mean the u.s would have to acknowledge that the adversary quote unquote this adversary russia is actually strategically going about this conflict with ukraine in a way that will eventually see results and i do believe that it will eventually see results unless the united states decides and nato decides to ramp up the escalations beyond just indirect military assistance and direct economic sanctions, right? I think that Russia has surrounded, it seems pretty clear 
that Russia has surrounded Ukraine, and now it is going to place as much pressure on the Ukrainian government, on Ukrainian government as possible to force it to negotiate. And say what you will about that strategy, because there will obviously be costs, and those costs are human costs, and I do not support those human costs. That That is an unfortunate byproduct of war and the situation that came about based upon the developments that have occurred between Ukraine and Russia over the last eight years alone, but even further back. But nonetheless, that is the strategy, and this is war, and this is the reality of war. So back to the State of the Union address, because this is what Joe Biden was addressing, right? And he goes over and over and over and on and on and on about how the United States stands up for freedom over tyranny. It was American exceptionalism on steroids. He talked about the Ukraine coup in such an ahistorical manner, a complete lie. He talked about how six years ago, Putin rolled into Ukraine thinking he could take it. Well, he rolled in, I think he used the term, a wall of strength of the Ukrainian people. The That whole description is just inverse, a complete inverse of the reality. Russia didn't roll into Ukraine in 2014. There was a coup that took place, a coup d'etat that took place against a democratically elected government that was simply considering a more balanced approach between the EU and Russia, Viktor Yanukovych's administration. And that is what sparked the unrest from pro-EU. And then we saw fascistic forces openly opposing Yanukovych and going for the gusto, going for it all, seeking the overthrow of the government. And that is what occurred. There was no rolling in. There was a response by Russia, which was to hold a referendum for Crimea, which is what Crimea wanted in order to admit Crimea into the Russian Federation and provide protection from and protection of Russia's naval bases in Crimea, but protection also of the people of Crimea Crimea from what exactly has happened since the coup in 2014, which was the civil war that was sparked, this far-right attack on Russian-speaking people in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass region, which has killed more than 14,000 people, most of them civilians from this region. That is what happened, right? And then the coup government took on a semi, if not fully fascistic form all the way into the elections of 2019, which elected a, a closet puppet of the United States and NATO, as we're seeing now, but someone who was supposed to reform all the corruption that came after Maidan. In any event, right, that's how Joe Biden talked about this. It was the United States standing for freedom, standing for these heroic Ukrainian people who are pushing back Russia. You saw the celebration of the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States who was in attendance, and there was the standing ovation. And then you see Joe Biden, Joe Biden's wife, hugging her, and all of this very staged emotion in order to bring about a shift in public opinion, this continued shift of public opinion towards support for all of these policies, the sanctions and the increased military aggression and aid uh, to Ukraine. So Biden talked about Russia's intervention as premeditated and unprovoked. He said this, premeditated and unprovoked. 
And this has been the narrative of the U.S. media, the Western media, right? Russia is just in it to destroy the lives of Ukrainian people. It's trying to stomp on democracy. It is essentially just waging war for war's sake, for expansionism, for the return of the Russian empire. In this simplistic narrative and borderline racist narrative, right, because it's all about this Eastern kind of barbaric attempt to suppress and overthrow the benevolent West and the whiteness that it represents and all of the goodness that it represents. This simplistic explanation completely falls, uh, it completely falsifies the facts of the situation. He says, Joe Biden, that Russia rejected efforts at diplomacy. I seem to remember Joe Biden not too many months ago meeting with Vladimir Putin, talking to him and saying, no, we're not going to listen to you at all. We're going to continue to militarize Ukraine, give them weapons, and we're going to continue to say that Ukraine can choose to come into NATO if it wants to, and wink, 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 you want to, right? We're going to continue to interfere in Ukraine's affairs. We don't care what you say. And I, I think I remember Russia not too long ago, less than, you know, within the last month, giving specific proposals and requests both to the United States, to NATO, saying, this is what we want. We want to negotiate over the demilitarization of Ukraine and the potential admission of Ukraine into NATO. We see those as red lines, right? We need those to be respected. We need Ukraine to be neutral and not be in NATO. It cannot be an adversary to Russia. It cannot be a staging ground for NATO missiles, potentially nuclear weapons. It cannot be that. It also needs to demilitarize because of the civil war that's right upon our borders, and it is getting worse and worse and worse, right, as more weapons pour in. Seems that that happened, but Joe Biden completely ignored it and used the most crass Cold War propaganda, new Cold War propaganda to frame the situation as Russia rejected diplomacy. This is absolutely incredible, given that the United States has never engaged in diplomacy in its history. Real diplomacy, not talking about being forced to because, let's say, the Vietnamese are kicking your ass, right? Not because of that. Not because the United States now has to sit at the table with the Taliban because the Taliban are taking large sections of the country and defeating U.S. occupation forces. No, I'm talking about real di proactive diplomacy. The United States does not engage in that. The United States is, oh, if the United States is waging war simultaneously with diplomacy, then it's not diplomacy. And that has been the case throughout the United States' history. So to hear Joe Biden blame Russia and say that Russia is the one that's not negotiating diplomacy when Russia has actually been a pretty big force in diplomatic efforts worldwide in many different conflicts using the UN Security Council in very principled ways. Whatever you think about internal Russian politics, the Russian government, Vladimir Putin, one cannot deny that Russia is a leading power in the development of a multipolar world. Can't deny that. Russia and China, that partnership is the vanguard of the multipolar world. It is because they're huge countries, hugely influential economically, politically, and militarily. And it should come as no surprise why countries like Venezuela, Cuba, 
countries in Latin America, countries in Asia, why they support Russia. They're not coming out against Russia. They're not saying condemning Russia and they're not cutting off ties with Russia. Actually, many of these countries from Syria to Venezuela supported Russia's decision to recognize the breakaway republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. That's the reality. That's the way that the world is being divided based upon uh, a different visions for how international affairs, global politics, and the management of conflicts and contradictions worldwide. Uh, that's how the world is being divided in this multipolar way, where you do see uh, multiple poles from blocks of countries that want to see diplomacy, international law respected to the United States, which believes itself to, to be international law to even Europe, which is very conflicted, mostly a junior partner to the United States. But also you can see the huge conflicts of interests that are that are occurring as Russia becomes more and more isolated economically. There is going to be a breaking point, and it'll be very interesting to see where that happens. But nonetheless, now that you're here, continue to like the stream, continue to subscribe if you haven't yet. And we'll keep going. So Joe Biden was bragging about isolating Russia and supporting NATO allies. And the funny thing is, is that, and this is a position that Bernie Sanders takes, and I, and I think it's just completely and utterly criminal and hypocritical. And this should give one pause for anybody who still stands for Bernie Sanders. And look, I'm not trying to be demagogic and say you should hate Bernie Sanders for the sake of hating Bernie Sanders and dismissing whatever correct things he may say on domestic his domestic agenda. We should also talk about how his, he has not been a leader that can sustain a movement which can actually bring about that agenda. He's not really about that. He is still about politics and his political career. But nonetheless, if we just look at how he reacts to foreign policy moments like this, to international moments of crisis, then we should be really pausing if we still stand for someone like Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden share the exact same view. And this view was articulated in the State of the Union address when Joe Biden was bragging about inflicting pain on Russia and isolating Russia and enforcing powerful economic sanctions and taking the oligarchic wealth of Russia. And I find this to be so utterly hypocritical and just the nastiest Russophobia because it plays upon people's very amateurish and immature understanding of Russia. Think about this. Think about the United States telling the world, telling masses of people, telling its own public that it is waging a crusade for the Russian people to take through sanctions the economic wealth accumulated by Russian oligarchs. Think about that. Just think about what that means. It means the United States is now almost framing its warmongering and strangulation of Russia economically as a class war. It is saying that it is on the right side of a class war that it is democratizing wealth, and that is usurping wealth stolen from the Russian people. This is what Bernie Sanders says. I find this to be absolutely criminal, given the fact that the United States is the most heinous 
and most exploitative capitalist system on the planet. There is no place in the world that both has such an extreme level of inequality and levels of class exploitation and the military and economic supremacy to enforce a global order of inequality and exploitation. Russia is not in that position. And surely, if anybody knows about what has happened since 2001 in Russia, you understand that actually conditions have improved to a degree in Russia under Vladimir Putin. It's not a worker state or a worker's paradise. And surely we can see that the effects of sanctions, as well as the impact of Russia's continued allegiance to capitalism as a system has had negative effects on the conditions of poor people. But there are there is no comparison between today's Russia and the Russia of post-Soviet 1991 into 2000. There's no comparison because it was shock therapy that completely leveled and privatized the entire Russian economy and created such a level of crisis that it was Vladimir Putin who came in through the United Russia Party to stabilize the situation. And that's what has happened. The exact opposite has happened in the United States, right? There has been no, not even a slight improvement in living conditions. Things have gotten worse. And we'll talk about that in the second half of this analysis. But nonetheless, you have Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and lockstep agreement that we should be bragging about starving Russia and taking the oligarchic wealth of Russia and Putin, supposedly. And Bernie Sanders erroneously claims that Putin is richer than Bill Gates and Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, pardon me. That's an erroneous claim with absolutely zero evidence, right? We don't see Vladimir Putin on the Forbes' list of the richest individuals or Oxford's list of the wealthiest individuals. We don't see it because there is no reliable data on that. And given the size of Russia's economy, I doubt it. <laughs> I highly doubt it. So this is just how far Joe Biden and even someone like Bernie Sanders will go to demonize Russia and to act like the United States has some kind of claim, moral claim, to wage a crusade that is somehow going to benefit the Russian people. Sanctions inherently hit people. They inherently hurt people. They kill people in the thousands upon thousands around the world in places like Venezuela. We already see that Google's ban of its services in Russia is already affecting Russia's transportation system, right? And there's an interesting analysis that I engaged in and others like Carl Zha that this would never happen in China because the Great Firewall allowed for independent institutions and companies to emerge that are unfettered and untouched by U.S. finance and the ability of corporations to just pull out whenever they want. So like WeChat and Alipay, you'll never have this problem in China. Chinese people, there would be no sanctions available to the United States, NATO, Western powers that could impact Chinese society in this way. And that is part of the contradiction between capitalism and socialism. But nonetheless, bragging about Russia's pain, saying that you're going to take oligarchic wealth just recently, right, in the new year. What did Joe Biden do? He froze the assets of Afghanistan, stole them, and said, and this happened with Venezuela too, through gold. I think it was UK that did that, but with the US's blessing, of course, 
But in Afghanistan, right, I think it was somewhere, what, $7 billion, something like that, stolen from the people of Afghanistan and then said, oh, yeah, we'll give it back in humanitarian aid and we'll give it back and we'll, uh, you know, take the rest and, you know, support internal politics, NGOs, whatever, right? It's like the United States literally loots the wealth of countries like Afghanistan, starves them into the most extreme forms of poverty. And then has the gall to say, has the audacity to say that it is on some kind of crusade to take Russia's oligarchic wealth back and redistribute it to the people. I found that to be one of the most egregious claims of the State of the Union that just harkens on how far these sociopathic neocons will go to justify its interventions, its military interventions and it's an imperialist aggression. So the funny thing about this, I laughed at this, right? All this bluster about we're supporting NATO, 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 we're supporting Ukraine, we're supporting Ukraine. And then Joe Biden says, US forces will not be going to fight in Ukraine. <laughs> All he could say was we will defend NATO allies. We will defend NATO allies. We will not defend Ukraine. So the United States, Joe Biden, in this speech said he will protect NATO countries. And Ukraine's not in NATO, right? So this is hilarious. Ukraine isn't valuable enough. It isn't valuable enough to wage a, a ground war or a no-fly zone or anything like that to protect it, quote-unquote, from Russia. No. And this is what's hilarious is that you have a puppet like Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, begging for NATO membership and EU membership. And, oh, please, 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 please help us. Help us, my overlords. And they're literally telling him to his face that they don't care if, they, you know, in their minds, all the propaganda, they're saying that Russia is on a mad slaughter of the Ukrainian people. But, yeah we're not going to help you directly. We'll just, we'll throw some weapons at you and we'll, we're going to protect our Latvian friends, our Estonian friends, our Lithuanian friends and, and be, you know, you'll be okay. And Joe Biden said this to, to Americans, to the public. He said many times, I got your back. We're going to be okay. Right? So this is how cynical this all is. This is how absolutely laughable this can be and, and laughable in the sense that sometimes you got to laugh to keep from smashing something because the criminality is just so evident and Joe Biden's administration will go down. No doubt. We're only what less than two years in less barely a year in a, a little over a year in his administration will go down as one of the most criminal administrations, given that he has not only inherited all of the baggage from past administrations, but he is actually piling on the baggage and telling people in the most, and I'm not going to use the word demented because I'm a social worker. I used to work with older people, so I don't use that word, but he's doing it in the most cognitively distorted ways, right? And I don't know if you all caught it, everyone, but he had some gaffes in there that I would show you, but you know, I don't, I don't really care that much, but he, he said during it, and there's a funny thing going around social media of Kamala Harris in the background, but he confused Ukrainian with Iranian. 
So we said, oh, we're going to protect the Iranian people or give them all of our, uh, the Iranian people our support. <laughs> but really, he meant Ukrainian. And you see Kamala Harris in the background. Some people have been zooming in. And you see her correcting him in the background through her lips. It's just one of those moments that just shows that not only is the U.S. ruling class at a stage where it's at its most desperate and most oppressive, therefore, but it is also at one of its most incompetent moments where you have Joe Biden, who they did a lot probably to get him to give this speech in as articulate as he gave it, but even with all of the assistance, medically, probably, he was still unable to avoid pretty big gaffes, if we're going to call them that, like confusing Ukrainian with Iranian. So <clears throat> nonetheless, Ukraine isn't valuable enough for U.S. protection, at least direct protection that would prevent the so-called Russian horde, quote unquote, from attacking it. So he framed all of this in this battle between autocracy and democracy and that this iron will of the Ukrainian people will prevail against Russia and we're all in, but actually we're not in that much because we're just going to throw weapons to our NATO allies and they can do, they can do the work. They can protect themselves. They can figure out that refugee issue. And I'll send Samantha Power over there to uh, eat Eat, eat lunch and provide food to all of those refugees that uh, we're not going to really help and we're only going to admit the white ones. But uh, we'll, we'll throw some, I don't know, some days old chicken or something at them and everything will be okay. I mean, that's, that is how disrespectful the United States is to even its so-called allies, right? The United States is the hegemon and Joe Biden showed how arrogant this hegemon can be. That has no interest in diplomacy. All it cares about is this larger vision for containing Russia and also China. And Ukraine be damned. Ukraine is just a vassal state. Whatever happens to Ukraine, it only cares about, the United States only cares about that Ukraine will remain in the U.S.-NATO camp as a vassal state. Not in the camp, but remains loyal to the camp. And so it will do as much as it takes to keep that a reality. The problem with all of this, and I'll just close this segment about the U.S.'s, uh, Joe Biden's and the U.S.'s sort of approach to Russia. The problem with this in this scenario is that Russia is not only firing back, but Russia has surrounded Ukraine and is tar has a targeted military operation and mission that it is completing. And that all signs are pointing to that Russia will continue to pummel the government of Ukraine until it is forced to negotiate. And the more damage that Russia causes to Ukraine, the more likely that Ukraine will feel compelled to give in to Russia's demands. And if the United States cannot stop that pummeling, which it cannot, short of getting directly involved in the war, then the United States is pretty much useless here. And it just shows what empire in decline really means. Oh yeah, you can have all the weapons you want. You can have all this high-tech uh, trillions of dollars spent in this high-tech weaponry. You can militarize entire regions. You can do all these coups and proxy wars and even outright invade and occupy like in Syria. But you can't win. You can't win. 
That is what empire and decline means. People say, oh, empire is on decline. The American empire is super strong. Look at how it looks. And you're just looking at what is apparent, right? Of course, it looks super strong. It's incredibly strong if you just look at the superficiality of the situation. If you just look at, okay, wow, these weapons are superior. Wow, the United States spends more on the military than anyone else. Wow, the United States is the United States dollar is still dominant. Wow, you can just keep on saying, wow, 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 wow. However, the United States can't win. The United States is literally in a losing battle with itself that it is now projecting onto rising powers, which are laying the course for the future of humanity. That's what's happening. And this conflict in Ukraine is a major flashpoint, which will send shockwaves and accelerate this process by sending shockwaves throughout the world. So there you have it in the international sense, right? And we'll actually, we'll get more into China because he does talk about China, but more like in domestic competition sense. But in terms of the United States' foreign policy and what Joe Biden focused on, it was all about Russia. It was all about increasing the sanctions. It was all about being clear because politically, how absolutely suicidal would it be to announce at the State of the Union address that you were going to directly intervene in Ukraine? Poll numbers still show that on a partisan basis, both sides of the political aisle in the establishment and those who are loyal to voting for Democrats or Republicans oppose direct military intervention, right? You can always count on Americans in the post-global war on terror era to understand that they don't want to die, right? There's some selfishness in there because there is not a politics of solidarity, but there is an understanding that they don't want to die directly in these wars. But unfortunately, as we've seen in polls too, majorities support starvation sanctions on Russia. Majorities have negative opinions of Russia and China and will support damn near anything else that the United States does, that the imperialist system does. So I just want to make a point about that because there's a lot of conversation about war fatigue, right? War fatigue. Hold on one second. Um, yeah, there's a lot of conversations about war fatigue. So war fatigue is an interesting concept because it almost insinuates that there's some sort of burgeoning anti-war movement among the general population because people are tired of war. And there were people who assumed that Donald Trump's rhetoric and even Bernie Sanders to an extent because they had to pander to peace to a degree that that meant that there was this big opportunity for anti-war politics to flourish. And I think it's more complicated than that. While I do think that there are opportunities and we should be talking about anti-imperialism, anti-war, that's what I do. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it right now. We should be doing that. But we should also understand the reality of the situation that there are also many people that we will have to confront who see anti-war politics as only an extension of their own self-interest. And of course, we can start there. But internationalism, right, real solidarity and real anti-imperialism requires something a lot stronger, stronger stuff. It doesn't just mean that you're against wars because your children, yourself, you're going to die in these wars, that it's going to ruin your economy. 
but it means that you actually have empathy and solidarity with the people of Russia who are going to starve and die and have such a, a significant, there's going to be such a significant impact to their lives. The same with Venezuela, the same with Cuba, the same with Syria and the military and intervention and the, the sanctions, right? It means that when the United States is waging war on other peoples, that you see those peoples as equal to yourself and who possess interests that are aligned with yours. That if there is a crime, right? If the United States, as Martin Luther King said, is dropping bombs on Vietnam, that those bombs are exploding at home. It means that your empathy and solidarity to peoples at home is because you understand that their interests are interlocked with yours. That's what real class struggle, international solidarity is. Unfortunately, war fatigue does not mean that. It does not equate to that. And so that's why you have these polling numbers, right? And we can talk about who's polled and how polls happen and all of that. We know that they're not the best barometer and measure. But I think we can really conclude that because there's this disparity between how people view their own interests in the United States, right? This Americanism, America first attitude, and how they negatively view other peoples in other nations like Russia and China, that that's why people will support sanctions, right? They don't know that sanctions are starving and killing people. They think, oh yeah, Putin's just going to suffer and Russia's just going to do what we say after that. And then everything will be okay, right? It's this very America first, American exceptionalist attitude that we do need to be challenging even among our own forces, right? And this includes the Sandernistas, right? Because they are, right? You heard people like Marion Williamson and Bernie Sanders. We've heard them all come out in support of sanctions and even giving weapons to Ukraine. These moves that are blatant acts of war and only worse than the situation. So Joe Biden, incredible warmonger, a neocon, dangerous as they come, and he showed it in the State of the Union address. So I'm going to move on now to the other part of the State of the Union address, which was the U.S.-centric part, right? The uh, part of the domestic agenda, which I haven't been talking about as much lately, but it is something that is always constantly on my mind. While you're here, though, please like the stream, subscribe to the stream, uh, subscribe to the channel, I mean. Hit the bell for notifications after you hit the subscription button. And then if you can, of course, support my work at patreon.com slash Danny Haifan. That's how you support the show with as little as $1 a month or more if you can. And you can also subscribe to my Substack annually if you would like. And you can also subscribe to that for free if you'd like. So there you have it. That's how you can support this work. So moving on. All right. So he talks about Joe Biden in the State of the Union address, many things. I'm not going to get into all of it because I, I don't find all of it important. And there's a lot of performativity, performance going on, a lot of like, oh, look at the little boy who needs insulin over there. Look at the construction, you know, workers over here. There's a lot of performance that goes on in this to try to make the, the United States look exceptional right? It's about reinforcing the American exceptionalism. It's about reinforcing Biden's legitimacy. And it felt a little bit more intense, I think, than what I usually remember these how these speeches go, because there is a lot of this unity bipartisanship that is actually real in 
the United States right now. I mean, that's the thing about Democratic Party administrations under late stage imperialism and capitalism. It's that the Democratic Party tends to be the glue that helps Republicans, neocons, and so-called liberal establishment forces unite on the most critical issues, right? That has been a pattern since the Clinton era, arguably. So, and before that, but it became most acute beginning in the Clinton era, this extreme bipartisanship on the issues that matter most to working class people. So there was a lot of this chanting, USA, 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 every time Joe Biden would talk about, not every time, but many times Joe Biden would mention domestic accomplishments. And so I want to just go over a few of them, okay? One of the things that he mentioned, right, was that the United States had defeated the pandemic, essentially. Well, he didn't say the pandemic was necessarily defeated. He was boasting about how the United States now can lessen its measures, reduce its measures because of all the things that he has done. Uh, this includes, right, all of the vaccinations that have happened, and it includes, right, being true to the science and the measures. And what's so just awful about that is that under Joe Biden, more people have died from COVID-19 than under Donald Trump. And this is after, right, just all of the things, the vaccine and all the things that we already know about COVID-19, not to mention an administration, which openly bragged about how it was following the science and Donald Trump was just there to profit from and have his oligarchic and corporate uh, friends profit from COVID-19. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is presiding over a society that is seeing still nearly 2,000 deaths per day in the United States across the country. And all of this talk of reopening, reopening, reopening is completely without any real support for people, despite all of the talk about, oh, we're going to give support to people. No, there's no support. There's no economic assistance for people that can't work. There's no assistance. There's no real robust public health measures that people can agree upon and that people will follow because they trust the government. No, there's none of that. There's literally just mask off, go back to work. That's what capitalism is about. And guess what? Even though we sound just like Donald Trump, we sound just like anyone else who is talking about needing to reopen to bolster the economy, you know, libertarians and Republicans and pro-corporate forces. I'm going to say the same thing. That's essentially Joe Biden's position on COVID-19. And so it was very clear that Joe Biden was outright lying about his progress that he's made, about the progress that the United States has made. The United States is really in a state of stagnation when it comes to the pandemic and stagnation really with everything. But the United States is not defeating the pandemic. We know that the pandemic now is set to become endemic because of the way that the United States responded to this. And it wasn't a good faith player 
in coordinating an international response, which is what you really need during a pandemic. You can't have every other every country doing their own thing if this is a global new virus that you need to coordinate a real public health response to so that when cases do shrink when there are vaccines that you can actually coordinate something where maybe just maybe if this is scientifically possible because that who knows who knows if it would have been scientifically possible to get rid of COVID-19 but we'll never know because the United States didn't do its part and of course its allies didn't do its part and so here we are and so Joe Biden bragging about <laughs> that's the really the key word here just constantly bragging about how well he has done in this area is just, you know, to me, criminal. And so there are other things that we need to talk about in, in relation to the domestic situation. So, of course, China came up, right? You can't have a speech, I guess, from the president of the United States without talking about China. And so China was brought up in terms of infrastructure, right? This competition between China and Joe Biden said, you never bet against the American people, right? And I couldn't just think to myself, okay, so you told, he said he told President Xi Jinping this. He said, I told Xi Jinping that it's never, it's never a good thing to bet against the American people. And I'm just like, who's doing that? When is Xi Jinping, <laughs> Xi Jinping, when is Xi Jinping bet against the American people? No. Actually, I'm sure President Xi Jinping of China is thinking, oh, I, I really am go I really want to bet on the American people to actually stop this new Cold War so we can get on with uh, having some kind of mutual partnership that is economically beneficial to both countries. I think that's more where Xi Jinping is at. And so there's all this projection going on and all this tough guy stuff that Joe Biden likes to do. But, you know, it's all about this buy American and we're going to really build infrastructure this time. It's not, we're not going to talk in weeks. We're going to talk in the the uh, decade, the infrastructure decade, not an infrastructure week. And he was able to acknowledge, right? I'll give Joe Biden credit, this, credit for this. He was able to acknowledge that China indeed is investing in infrastructure and the United States is behind. And that is just objectively true. But then he goes out and promises something that is just not going to happen. He promises something like 500,000 electric vehicle stations. And even CNN, if you look at their fact check, they say, no, not so fast. There is no guarantee that that's going to happen. And in fact, given all of the various forces that could get in the way from economic forces to political forces, it looks like that's probably not going to happen. So here you have Joe Biden lying literally about what the U.S.'s capacity is to invest in renewable energy. Meanwhile, in China, you have the vast majority of renewable energy, especially in relation to electric vehicles, residing there, right? The vast majority of all uh, capacity for renewable energy, including electric vehicles, uh, resides in China. And that is just a categorical fact. And Joe Biden doesn't want to open the can of worms about why that really is. It's not about China betting against the American people. It's about China investing in public infrastructure in China, having a government that actually is in control of how to plan an economy and how to do so in the interest of the people on the planet. And the United States doesn't have that. So Joe Biden, just all he can do is lie. And he can only lie because there's no inspiration in just saying that you're an austerity regime. 
that you're just going to continue to enact austerity. He goes on to talk about how he has added all of these jobs, right? 6.6 million jobs. Well, these 6.6 million jobs, the vast majority of them are low-wage jobs. They are not good jobs. Actually, there was a report in CNBC in the last six months that said, actually, job numbers are down for low-wage workers. So the recovery is not coming for those who make under $30,000 a year, who make less than $15 an hour. The recovery is actually still a depression for them because job numbers are down. And even CNN, again, the CNN fact check report had to say that actually, even though the job numbers are true, it obscures the fact that the U.S. economy is still behind pandemic times, pre-pandemic times, meaning that there are fewer jobs in the United States now than there were in 2000, the end of 2019, by around more than about 2 million, a little bit more. So Joe Biden didn't want to say that. He just wanted to say, oh, I've created all these jobs and I'm going to fix everything and everything is all good, right? You can trust me. And when you have to say things like, I've got your back, you're going to be okay. And if the rule, <laughs> I mean, this is just a rule if the ruling class is telling you, but really if anyone is telling you that after they've lied to your face, you, you got to just pause and say, well, is this a friend of mine, right? Uh, like, when somebody does that, it should be an indicator that you're not going to be okay. <laughs> if they have to tell you you're going to be okay, right? These people who have the power to determine your future and your economic livelihoods and how you live your life and your uh, living conditions, then yeah, it's likely you're not going to be okay. And Joe Biden is surely not going to make it okay for workers and oppressed people here in the United States or around the world. And we saw that through all of the bravado and all of the empty promises. Joe Biden treated the State of the Union as another opportunity to campaign. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to make healthcare cheaper. We're going to build all these roads. And there is just no real evidence that whatever happens, right? And, and you know, there, it's not like there aren't policies. There are policies that have been passed. The infrastructure bill, which we know was a privatization giveaway. We know that there's that Build Back Better bill that is probably not going to go anywhere under Joe Biden's first and likely only term. So there is policy out there and there's some that's going to be implemented like the infrastructure bill, but there's no evidence that it's going to meaningfully change the lives of working people. And that is why there is such a low opinion of Joe Biden right now, because COVID-19 is still a problem. Unlike Joe Biden's State of the Union address, COVID-19 is still a massive problem for people, especially healthcare workers, but really for all people, it's still affecting our lives to a significant degree. And people are dying still. We have to acknowledge that. But the entire trend across all governments, across the local, all the way up to the federal and Joe Biden himself, the trend is, well, we're going to live with it. And Joe Biden is the gaslighter in chief. And he'll say, well, we're not actually going to live with it. We're going to do something about it, but we're going to live with it because what we're doing isn't good enough, right? That is the overall message that he's sending. And one of the things that was so disgusting about the State of the Union 
when he would talk about domestic policy was how he would invoke Trump and how he would invoke the prior president and how he would make contrasts and how his Democratic Party friends in Congress would put on these just absolutely just deplorable and classless acts of celebrations and cheers and boos about Donald Trump. This is where the Democratic Party just absolutely infuriates me. And, and I understand why it is so important as much as I think that the whole duopoly needs to be overthrown and taken out and opposed and organized independently of. It's important to realize and why I've written for Black Gender Report and why I always support forces and engage with forces that are putting in the work to talk about the duopoly and oppose the duopoly. It's because also the Democratic Party is designed and organized at this moment to not only be the war party and the party of austerity, but also to be the weapon against the left to hold the left back and preferably if there's any movements that emerge, place them squarely in their graveyard of social movements. That is what Joe Biden was doing and, oh, and, and will continue to do in his State of the Union address. He was once again diverting all the attention to Donald Trump around domestic issues. Look at how good I've done compared to Donald Trump. And then the cheers would come in. And then he would talk about Trump's stimulus bill and the booze would come in, right? This is just performance, partisan performativity to distract from the fact that Joe Biden's administration has actually been woeful in regards to all of the areas that he was bragging about, from renewable energy to employment to the fact that working class people, especially low-wage workers, are struggling now more than ever, despite having a president that says otherwise. That's why he is the gaslighter in chief. The Republicans will tell you to your face that they want to starve you. And so we understand we're not going to vote for them and we're certainly going to organize against them. But we also understand that the Democratic Party really does provide a buffer between not just the GOP, but the entire ruling class and the masses of people, the workers, the oppressed. I mean, that's what they are designed to do. That's what their role is, the Democrats. So lastly, this is my last point on the domestic agenda. Right, Because we know what Joe Biden didn't say. Joe Biden didn't support Medicare for all. He didn't support student loan forgiveness. You had the squad and people like Pramila Jayapal saying, Joe Biden, you have to say you're going to cancel student loans, all cancel student debt in this speech. And it's like, were you born yesterday? That's not going to happen. He's told you over and over again he's not going to do that. Why do you continue to act like that's going to happen? So... The big red flag, right, the thing that is actually getting some attention, and it should, is his comments on policing. So Joe Biden comes out, and he said this since the beginning. He said this since the campaign, that Joe Biden is against defunding the police. He does not care that police departments take up upwards of 30, 40, half of city budgets at times. It doesn't matter that police departments around the country get, you know, roughly couple billion dollars uh, annually. Um, well, actually, I don't know if it's a couple billion dollars, but it receives millions upon millions that leads to billions since the uh, uh, 1043 
I think it's 1043, the the uh, the program that uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats and the entire ruling class, the government supports the program that sends Pentagon weaponry to the police departments around the country, which militarizes them. I mean, that is, and this is going to drive me crazy, so I have to look it up, but that is uh, the, that is what Joe Biden supports, right? So Joe Biden supports funding the police. He said that outright. Doesn't matter that the police already receive all of this money from the federal government in the form of literal weapons, right? Weapons that the military uses in wars, police departments around the country are carrying around. Uh, doesn't matter. Joe Biden wants more money because that's what you do when you want the police departments to improve and reform, he says, right? That is... Joe Biden's position. And he was very clear about that yesterday in the State of the Union address. He said that he is against defunding the police and he is for giving more money. And he bragged about the American Rescue Plan giving like a slush fund of a couple hundred billion dollars for police departments to essentially reform. And this should tell us all we need to know about Joe Biden, crime bill Joe Biden a literal architect of the mass incarceration state, little known in 1986, he was also part of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, the act that began the street three strikes laws and the mandatory minimums that was famous under uh, Reagan's administration that began this process. He also helped author that. But of course, he's more well known for the role he played in the 1994 crime bill and the 1996 immigration act, which had crime bill elements to it. He's more well known for his support in being an author uh, of those bills and an architect and an out and a supporter of those bills of the super predator predator narrative. Joe Biden is a white supremacist. <laughs> Joe Biden has been a white supremacist for his entire career. No matter how much he lies. Okay, so it's a 1033 program. I said 1043. 1033 program. That's the program that the Pentagon has to send uh, weapons to police departments. Okay, so he supports that. Doesn't he mention it? Nobody really does in government. But nonetheless, Joe Biden is for increasing the police militarization of society. He is for, honestly, the crackdown and the suppression of the very protests and the very movements that Democrats pander to in order to garner votes, especially the black vote, right? Because it's all about how to keep black people in the Democratic Party. It's all about how to keep the black left from being able to be independent of the Democratic Party. And by extension, the entire left, because where the black left goes, the entire left goes. And so that's why there is this universal assault on left politics from the labor movement to the anti-war movement to the environmental movement. And of course, the black movement being one of the more prominent focuses, uh, points of focus for the Democrats. And so Joe Biden, he doesn't even care about any of that. He is willing to say and he is confident that black people and their allies and Black Lives Matter forces will support Democrats anyway, no matter if he says that he wants to fund police more. 
You can protest him all you want. But to be honest, there hasn't been any, right? Look at the way that things have changed since Donald Trump have left, has left office. Joe Biden has increased deportations. He has continued the militarization of police. There have been a slew, uh, just a, a whole, from Duante Wright and others, of people killed by police, black people killed by police, right? And we can talk about the economic conditions, the way that Joe Biden has escalated U.S. foreign policy, the way that Joe Biden has not made good on his environmental pledges. But each and every one of these movements have not really reemerged in any significant way under Joe Biden. The Democrats have once again shown why they are the more effective evil, because they can put a pause on political resistance. They can dampen it by funneling political energy and funding, right? Providing direct funding to certain forces which can demobilize people. And that's what we are seeing here is that Joe Biden is operating. He may be the walking dead. He may have all of these cognitive impairments. He may just be an arm of the establishment, but he is walking on terrain where he does not have to be concerned about any of it, right? The only concern he has right now is that if he does somehow, right, have the energy to run for a second term and try to be a two-term president, that the only thing he has to be concerned about is the fact that he's on the fast track toward not being able to do that, toward a Republican-majority Congress coming up in 2022, which will only hamper his capacity to do things that he doesn't even want to do in the first place, right? But the 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 element of performance will be gone, right? With them, with Republican-majority Congress, there won't be even opportunities to perform so that will only lead to more disillusionment because defeat only leads to more defeat in many ways when it comes to establishment politics. So that's what Joe Biden has to be concerned with. And that is really what we saw at the State of the Union address was an attempt to, to just kind of campaign your way through a speech and to tell people that things are all good. Things are all good for working people. Things are going better. Life is improving conditions are improving and you should support me. You're going to be okay. doesn't matter that COVID-19 is still killing people, still disrupting the economy, still disrupting your life. It doesn't matter that the job situation is still very precarious for most people. It doesn't matter that poverty went up when I stopped the child tax credit for children, right? That it went shooting right back up by millions of children. None of that matters. What matters is that I'm president. I'm smiling. I'm here. I'm performing. Look at Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris. They're so friendly toward me. Nancy Pelosi didn't rip up uh, my State of the Union address, right? She didn't do that. I mean, that is what we have, is we have a performance. We have a presidency that is all about serving the ruling class in a way that looks better than what preceded it, Donald Trump. It's all about public relations at this point. We are in one big public relations campaign that is faltering, that is stuttering, that is stammering, that is just tripping over itself, right? That is what the Joe Biden administration is. And we have to be able to connect both this hawkish foreign policy that he demonstrated with the fact 
that he is prepared to give away to his corporate and capitalist friends, his donors, more and more and more and take more and more and more from people to give to them. That's what that's what the situation that we're in. We're in for more austerity. It is it is a guarantee, right? When you say you're going to fund policing more, when you say that you're going to provide more military assistance, when you say that you're going to focus on all of these endeavors and then your actual policies are all about laissez-faire with COVID-19, everybody just go back to work. I'm going to create low-wage jobs, but I'll just tell you that they're good jobs. That means more austerity is down the pike, more exploitation is down the pike, and we have to be ready and willing to call it out and start to also call out our friends who, you know, we've seen during this Ukraine-Russia crisis that people's allegiances are confused, that their loyalties, that their politics, they're confused, and when there's confusion, usually that defaults to the establishment narrative and it defaults to establishment pro-establishment politics because usually confusion is a sign of of dual loyalties of loyalty to the order as it exists now imperialism as it exists now the united states as it exists now versus what could be right and i think what's missing here is a vision for what could be and what should be right because it's one thing to want medicare for all it's one thing to want student loan forgiveness. It's a one thing to want all of these universal policies that are socialist-ish. But it's another thing to understand what kind of system is required to get that. And then what kind of activity is needed to then get to that system, a real socialist system. Because we're not going to ask or even demand our way, right, just by asking the Democrats through our votes to do what we want them to do. When has that ever worked, right? And I think that's where the model of a lot of the Sandernistas is so incorrect, is that their method of struggle reflects a historical ignorance of how real achievements of oppressed people are won. How do you win those achievements? You do not win them by saying, okay, we're just not going to vote for you. And maybe we'll flirt with third parties. Maybe we'll make the MPP. Maybe we'll make, maybe we just won't vote. No, the vote is not powerful. It's not. It's just a tool of reproduction of the political system. It is not a tool to enact change, right? It never really was, but it was only valuable insofar as there was, of course, the race problem in the United States, which even prevented these uh, bourgeois political rights, these bourgeois democratic rights from certain sections of the population. But once those barriers, at least symbolically, are lifted, even though structurally there's still a lot of barriers to voting, once that's lifted, then you you kind of see and you can see what the reality is. And the reality is, is that class society is not determined by voting. It's determined by political struggle and the struggle between opposing forces and which force ends up winning via whatever methods are needed to get there, violent, nonviolent. In the United States context, that's to be determined. In other contexts, it's been a mixed bag, but a lot of it has been, by necessity, revolutions that overthrow the existing capitalist, imperialist, colonial 
order. That's how successful revolutions have been won. And so Joe Biden's administration is all about arresting that process, putting history on hold, right? Because as I said in the beginning, this multipolar world is happening and the United States can't do anything about it. What the United States can control is how long it can hold on to its hegemony, how long it can maintain its hegemony by arresting the balance of forces in the United States by ensuring that any kind of sentiment, any kind of popular sentiment for uh, demands and for policies that will improve people's lives are put on hold on the back burner or obliterated and eliminated through violence. I mean, that that is the history of the United States in a nutshell, right? Establishing a violent colonial capitalist and imperialist order. And then from then on, any resistance to it, responding with both psychological, political, and military violence. That is the history of the United States. And it is the legacy that Joe Biden not only sits upon, but is charting its own form and its own place in that legacy in a moment of extreme crisis. So with that said, like the stream, I will be here for another 20 minutes with all of you. Like the stream, subscribe to the stream, uh, the, the channel, subscribe to the channel and hit the bell. And if you are able, support my work at patreon.com slash Danny Haifang. That's how you support this show. So with that said, I'm going to end the domestic portion there. And I think what is very interesting about the State of the Union is that usually the conversations about it and this just goes for all the presidents, right, in mod in the modern era, from what I can remember, is that it's it's usually talked about in this way where there's some kind of aura about it that it's this moment where the people get to see the president, they get to see him talk. It's not like Joe Biden during the beginnings of the escalations around Russia, Ukraine. I don't know if you remember that. It was I think it was right as Russia was starting its military intervention, Joe Biden held a press conference. And I think he made people wait for something like 40 minutes. I was on Twitter, I remember being like, all right, I'm not waiting for this, but I'm going to check in every once in a while. And I did. And it was just an empty podium for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And I was just like, this guy's just not coming on. So I'm not going to watch it. And I didn't watch it because he didn't come. So it's not like that. It's not like this relationship that the president usually has. This is that's very alienated from the masses, right? That's why you have a Jen Psaki who will give the president's line on issues to the media, but will do so in a way that protects the president. And every president has this from Sean. Remember Sean Spicer was his name, right? To Jen Psaki. I mean, they, these are the figures that do that work. And it's just another indication of how far away, alienated people are actually from their so-called representatives. That under capital, under capitalism, under imperialism, you don't live in a democracy. You live in an oligarchy veiled 
in the window dressing of democracy. You have political operations that you can participate in or not because you're suppressed or you're barred like prisoners who are convicted of felonies. They can't vote. And when they get out of prison, they still can't vote. But needless to say is that you can participate in some way. You can vote all you want. But your interests will never be expressed because those who you are voting for already are dictating and governing society in the interests of themselves and those that they serve in the interests of profit, in the interests of monopoly capital, in the interests of finance capital. That is U.S. democracy in a nutshell. That is what you can summarize it as. It is oligarchy. Right? People always cite that 2014 study, which is a great study, where it showed that <clears throat> no matter how you slice it, no matter what kind of political participation you're talking about, policy was not affected. Right, So that is a demonstration of an quote-unquote oligarchy. But sometimes oligarchy can be a little imprecise because oligarchy almost assumes just this kind of like abstract hoarding of wealth right but imperialism and capitalism at its base is a particular kind of hoarding of wealth it is about the exploitation of labor and about a production process which thrives on coercion of working people forcing them into a kind of wage slavery and then using all of these ill-gotten gains as joe biden said of russia to then continuously concentrate wealth, continue to develop into a monopoly in a financial empire, dividing the world in its image, as Lenin said, and then putting into place just this extremely severe form of inequality based on debt, based on uh, the deindustrialization of of capital intensive societies to the rapid super exploitation of uh, capital depleted societies, right? This way that imperialism does of super exploiting the so-called underdeveloped, so-called colonized world, and then also looting and plundering anything that could be viewed as a cost to the so-called advanced world. I mean, this is the imperialism that we are living under. And that requires a political process that's wholly undemocratic. It requires a political process that puts into place people like Joe Biden, who, despite their record of service to creditors and Wall Street banks and militarists, that they can then come onto television, address the public and say, you're going to be OK and I have your back. Right. It's that kind of cynical gaslighting which has created so much and caused so much damage to the world and has brought the struggle back so much in the United States and around the world, given the U.S.'s role in arresting and beating back the struggle for socialism. But here we are in this moment, 2022. The State of the Union address is over, and my analysis of it is over. So I'm going to speak to you all for another about 15 minutes before I should go. But I do just want to end talking about, you know, just a few things that have been on my mind. 
And of course, please do like the stream. Please do subscribe to the channel. Please do hit the bell. And please do subscribe on patreon.com slash dannyhaifong to support the show. So I, in, in my writing, and my next article is going to be on the racism and media coverage of Ukraine and Russia, the chauvinism, how Western outrage has been driven by it. And during it, you know, I had to talk about the history of Cold War racism because it's not generally talked about. You know, there's anti-communism and red scare politics, but rarely is it put in the form of or description of racism. So I just want to say that during this period, right, and we have to understand this history, during this period of intense global struggle during the, what's known as the Cold War, but we can really trace this back to 1917, the Russian Revolution, the formation of the Soviet Union. Beginning at this time, class struggle accelerated to a degree never before seen in history. I mean, we're talking about revolutions just really developing in all parts of the globe and the fight back against colonialism, the world wars. It created a real powder keg right, in the struggle between socialism and capitalism. And during this time, there was, of course, this fervent Red Scare politics that was meant to increase anti-communist sentiment because the United States and its allies wanted to arrest and ultimately overthrow any kind of socialist movement, destroy any socialist movement that came its way and that came, that emerged in this uh, struggle. And that included in the United States. And so there was a, there's a deep relationship between the racism that, let's say, Black people were facing under Jim Crow terror and the reaction to Black Reconstruction, the mass lynch mobs, the super exploitation, right? The Black codes, those things. That environment of violence and repression was deeply connected to anti-communism. And anti-communism was racist in character. It was about portraying the people of the Soviet Union and then in 49, the people of China and all socialist movements, anti-colonial movements as inhumane, savage, autocratic, authoritarian, totalitarian, all of these terms were dehumanizing because they insinuate that the people who are engaged in these struggles are not only evil and out to destroy the American way of life or the Western way of life, but they're, they're also not human. And so this is very important to understand because one of the reasons why racism and anti-communism go so well together is because they are a concerted effort to destroy any bonds of solidarity. And so also during this period, you had the Communist Party USA, for example, the Scottsboro Boy case, which the Communist Party USA was heavily involved in. You had the Communist Party organizing in workplaces, building leadership. There were, you know, leaders, black leaders developing in the party. There was a concerted effort to fight Jim Crow. And then there was also, as time went on, as the struggle advanced, there were efforts to build bonds of solidarity with the Soviet Union, to be a part of the Third International, 
We had Paul Robeson, W.E.B. Du Bois, Claudia Jones. We had many people in the Communist Party and who considered themselves socialists, even in the Black movement, uh, such as those activists, William Patterson. They were visiting the Soviet Union and they were talking about that experience and they were talking about the Soviet Union and then China as bulwarks and allies in the fight against this global system of colonialism, racism, and capitalism at the base. That was very concerning for the ruling class. That's why the Cold War was waged on the domestic front as well. It wasn't just merely this battle between the U.S. and the West and the Soviet Union. It was a battle between resistance to imperialism, to capitalism, and the forces that sought to destroy it. That's what the Cold War was about. And it led to significant repression, Claudia Jones being deported. You had W.E.B. Du Bois lose his passport, live the rest of his days in Ghana. You had uh, Paul Robeson, you know, having to stand in front of HUAC and also incurring consequences on his ability to travel, his career as an artist impacted. You had that repression happening all across that early to mid 20th century period. And then that formed the basis of the counterintelligence program, which wiretapped and harassed and conducted a, a military assault, a covert military operation on a counterinsurgency on resistance, mainly black resistance, but really all resistance to, to empire and to capitalism in the United States. And it led to assassinations. It led to the destruction of movements. It led to confusion and it led to the drawing away of political support from people like Martin Luther King Jr. even in order to maintain the system as it were, the system of imperialism as it were. So that that's important to know. And I talk about, I'm going to talk about that in my article because new Cold War racism that we're seeing against Russia has a very similar function in that we saw Russiagate was a tool of repression of dissenting voices and people who were developing an anti-imperialist perspective and potentially movements that could challenge empire. And so now the catalyst is not so much in movements as they already exist, but now trying to stop them from ever existing again. That's a lot of what Russiagate is. That's a lot about of what labeling, even calling Kaepernick as an agent of the Russians, Black Lives Matter, all of that. All of that propaganda is about keeping these movements from even existing. And so new Cold War racism takes a similar form, even if it has a different historical function, a similar form to Cold War racism of the first Red Scare period. It is about, one, containing an alternative social order, this time a multipolar order, an order based on more democratic international governance with a socialist economy like China, socialist system like China, a an emerging capitalist economy like Russia from being able to cooperate and chart 
a course for the future, right? It's about arresting the ability for that to happen on the international stage through out-and-out violence and war, while also keeping progressives, leftists, class struggle forces in the United States and West in the West from being able to advance themselves educationally, politically, organizationally. And so we have to look at new Cold War racism toward Russia in this complete light. It is not just a matter of, oh, they're saying Russia's bad and they're just trying to fool us and distract us. And it's about that. Yeah, it's about the wars. It's about censorship. But then we have to go even further underneath about why. What is the purpose? And the purpose is that this empire is in decline and it's holding on by maintaining dominance through repression. And so Joe Biden, his State of the Union address was all about how to maintain that oppression. So there you go. That is where we're at. That is my at least understanding of the developments before us and where Joe Biden's State of the Union address squarely fits into. And so I hope this was helpful. You know, I could spend the next five, 10 minutes or so taking questions in the chat if you wanted to put those in the recent um, uh, recent chat comments. But this ends the formal discussion. Of course, before you leave, if you don't want to stay around for the Q&A, please like the stream, subscribe to the channel, hit the notifications bell. And then, you know, if you can support me at patreon.com slash Danny so somebody mentioned in the chat about by any means necessary, and I do want to say that RT and media that is at least based in Russia is now is being heavily assaulted in Europe and even in the United States. I know Google Chrome won't let me watch, won't let me go on to RT anymore, even me. I don't know. I, don't, I know it's not a, a U.S. policy, but it seems like it is. It seems like Google has taken a really hard line. And so by any means necessary, comrades Jackie, Lukman, and Sean, Blackman, you know, they're, they're being suppressed and we need to oppose that. And we need to not listen to those reactionaries who say, oh, well, you're opposed to censorship of Russian media, but how about Russia bombing Kiev, the Kiev television or something? And then what I have to say to that is get with the program. The war was precipitated, instigated by the U.S. and by NATO. It's time that we stop with the, oh, this is this is some sort of equivalency. There's some sort of equivalency in, the, in this when the U.S. has been censoring, despite it's it not being in an outright war. It's not in a war with anybody, and it is you know a crime, of course, to target media that is internationally recognized. But the United States has been censoring RT and other platforms for years. And this is just another escalation, another pretext for it. And so we need to oppose it and we need to just tune out those naysayers and continue to push forward with the understanding that this war that Russia, this operation that Russia is conducting is in large part because of the way that the United States has behaved in the region that it shouldn't even be in. <laughs> It's behaved in a region it shouldn't, have been, shouldn't even be in for years. So let's see. Is there any questions here? 
how do you feel about people boycotting and sanctioning Russia, but won't do the same for Israel? There's one of the questions. So I'm going to get go up because I know some other people have questions. So I'm just going to say really quickly how I feel about that is it's hypocritical and it shows where you are in terms of your class interests. It shows that you're more willing to starve a country that's already has sanctions on it. You're willing to support a war crime, which is sanctions as they are <clears throat> as they are constituted by an imperialist regime like the United States. But you're not willing to support through real civil disobedience the Palestinian people who are being starved, who are being murdered, who are being who are victims of genocide. You're not willing to support them through a political boycott and an economic boycott, which would merely hurt the Israeli government, the Israeli economy's capacity to exist in the way that it does, similar to South Africa. Right, we're not talking about starving people. We're talking about the Israeli, the Israeli system of Zionism and colonialism, having to respond to the will of uh, people who stand on the side of justice. So, Elizabeth asks, and this is a great question: How do you think China is doing with its response to the conflict? Personally, I think incredibly. I think China is leading the way in how you handle very complicated international conditions, global conditions. And here's why. Some people may object to the fact that China did not veto the resolution that was put forward to condemn Russia's intervention at the UN Security Council. But China did not need to veto that because Russia is on the UN Security Council and was going to veto anyway. Now, the reason why it's so important for China not to veto is because the political situation in the world, right, the U.S. and its imperial allies are looking for any reason to delegitimize China and Russia and to escalate against both. And so it's not in Russia's interest or China's interest, in their mutual interests, to get into a situation where it looks like there is a camp forming. But that doesn't mean that China isn't that China is on the other side in attempting to isolate Russia and not stand by its side. China has declared that it will continue to trade with Russia. There is no doubt that that will accelerate given how isolated Russia is and will continue to be economically in the world system. And that China has been a mediator and has said that it will, unlike the United States, which refuses to engage diplomatically, refuses to come to the table, China is willing to mediate the conflict in a way that meets the interests of all parties. And this includes the fact that Russia in and of itself doesn't want to economically destroy the U Ukraine. It doesn't want to commit its own kind of suicide because if Russia impacts the economic well-being and health of Ukraine, it also negatively impacts itself because Russia hopes for better economic relations. And the same goes for China, right? Both of them have integrative plans economically that include Ukraine, right? Ukraine is a huge uh, economic sort of basket of wealth that deserves to be part of any kind of economic integration plan, any kind of global trade plan for increased and 
improved and more functional global trade that's more mutually beneficial, whether it's the Belt and Road Initiative or the Eurasian Economic Union, Ukraine should be a part of that. But politically, it cannot be because, well, we've seen what's happened to Ukraine's politics over the last eight years. But nonetheless, China is operating in a way that is diplomatic, that is about maintaining a neutral stance as best as possible in very complicated conditions where you have an imperialist system ever more aggressive and at the same time an ally that is engaging in an offensive right consider you know we could call it defensive right if uh, politically but in terms of how it's viewed worldwide it's viewed as an offensive so that means that china has to be very careful about how it politically approaches this conflict. And I think it's done a very good job to not betray Russia's interest, to betray its own interest, while at the same time showing what it means to be a leader in a multipolar world. So that's my answer to that question. And let's see if there's any question. Can you actually visualize any scenario in which workers can actually pull off a hostile takeover of the assets of a corporation and convert it to a workers' co-op? Not without, I mean, I could see this individually maybe happening on a case-by-case -case basis, but I cannot see this happening. I don't subscribe to Richard Wolf's theory that we can just worker co-op our way into revolution. I do not think that on a mass scale this could be carried out due to the repression. And I also don't think that there is enough of a, a, a political situation, a movement, a broad atmosphere that can support it. But I do think that the workplace struggles, whether it's for workers' co-ops or just better conditions to, to accelerate the antagonism between workers and the boss, workers and capitalists, that that can lead to movement situations and revolutionary situations that can then help chart the course for further organization activity. I mean, what we really need is a party that can support and sustain these kinds of activities that can help be a vanguard force in organizing certain kinds of activities like the one that you mentioned. But it will have to be a multifaceted approach a party that's why a party is necessary because you need multiple you need to be able to focus on multiple arenas of struggle in the workplace security propaganda right you need all sorts you need all the tools at your disposal but it needs to be centrally organized at the same time so i think we need a party to be able to test out to see if this is that is possible but i do not see that happening in sort of a abstract maybe more anarchistic sense of like, it'll, it'll be like a domino effect. I don't see that happening. That's, that is idealism. But what I do see happening is that in our efforts to form a party, in our efforts to form, to organize in these various parts of the struggle, that it does open up those kind of opportunities. And it can, it can happen. I'm, I, I'm not going to write it off, but it won't happen in a mass way. So I don't see any other questions. So with that said, uh, I should go. 
I do need to pick up my dogs at daycare. So thank you so much for all your support to help me keep my dog in daycare during streams. So what I do is I've been clipping these and putting in sections on YouTube when I'm not streaming. The next time, I'll just put a few announcements out there before I really go. Saturday, I will be streaming with Cyrus Jansen. That is actually going to happen. We've had to postpone, but that will happen. And it's going to be very exciting. And we're going to do it, I think, on our, cha our channel and his channel and get a lot of traffic. Should be amazing. So I also want to point you to the fact that I am going to be hosting a podcast beginning this Sunday on Colin, the Colin app. I, I highly suggest you subscribe or uh, to me, yes, and to follow me on Colin. It's called Cold War Brew, and I'm going to start 1130 a.m. on Sundays. And I just ask that you subscribe. I want to put the link in the chat. Ask that you subscribe to the show. Follow me on Colin. And it should be a fun, a fun program. Um, I think I'm going to start this Sunday. It's almost 90% likely I'm starting this Sunday. And it's going to be fun. And so I'm, uh, you know, I'm contracting with this company. And they're giving me the opportunity to run this podcast. And we can engage and we can have discussion more in a different format than these streams. So I think that's a cool opportunity and I look forward to it. So I will be going now, but before I leave, I want you to like the stream, subscribe to the channel, hit the notifications bell. And if you are able, support me on patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Uh, there'll be more announcements to come. I'll clip this. I'll put it on the channel for those who weren't able to watch it. And don't want to watch it all the way through. And we'll just we'll just keep on going. All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming to this stream. And I will be back with you probably on Saturday. It doesn't look like my wife's off the next couple of days and want to take some time. And then Saturday. Yeah, so likely Saturday we'll be streaming. Saturday morning, 9 a.m. So get ready for that. There will be an announcement. Me and Cyrus Jansen talking China and probably a whole bunch of other stuff. He's a very, very cool person, very, uh, very influential, and appreciate all of his work on China and talking about the real China. So salute to all of you comrades. Peace out. And until next time.